So Jesus, we ask that you would help us to apply those words to our lives and live out of them. Lord, by your power of your Holy Spirit, we can't do that without you, so please help us to even understand them in these next few minutes. In your name, Jesus, amen. Hello, 945. Good to see all of you here. Just to say this again, I said this a couple of weeks ago. Sometimes when you come in and it looks kind of crowded, there's almost always seats up front. We don't understand that phenomenon here at all. Um, I, I don't know, Colin and I, we, I don't think we smell. I think we're good. But, so if you come in, you can't find a seat, you know, feel free to come up front. Uh, or when you come in and you're early, Fill these seats up so that the back seats are left for people who arrive later. Because as I said a couple weeks ago, when people come and then they don't find a seat and leave, that makes the baby Jesus cry. You don't want to be a part of that. All right. (laughs) Move to the center. Move to the front. That would help us out a lot. Thank you. All right. I want to ask by start, we'll start this sermon by asking you a question. What is on your bucket list? Those things you would like to do before you die. Or let me put it a different way. Let me make it a little more focused. If you knew that you only had a week to live, just one week, what would you do with that week other than whimper in fear, which is what I would do? Like maybe for sure you'd spend time with friends and family, right? Like for sure you would do that one. Maybe you'd want to go somewhere that you've never gone before. I've always wanted to go to Antarctica, so that's on my bucket list. Uh, Maybe it'd be to do something daring that you've kind of always wanted to do, like bungee jumping or skydiving. I mean, at that point, you only have a week to live. (laughs) Who cares, right? (laughs) For me, I'd want to preach here one last time a really, really long sermon. (laughs) None of you would ever complain. Our bucket list tells us something about what we consider the good life to be, what, what our desires, our wishes, our priorities in life. So for Lent, we're going to do a sermon series where we're going to look at Jesus' bucket list during the last week of his life. By Palm Sunday, Jesus knows he's going to be crucified on Friday, knows he only has five more days. Here's what he does with those five days. Interesting kind of choices he makes. He borrows a donkey. That's kind of an interesting one, and and there's the donkey right there. Got a picture of it for you. He washed some stinky feet. How many of you have that on your bucket list? Like, man, before I die, I hope I wash some smelly feet, man. That's what I need. He yelled at religious leaders. Some of you probably do have that on your bucket list. <laughs> Few of you have already fulfilled it. And, and then and I was glad to be of service. Um, and then, then last, he ate with misfits. Well, that's not, but this is just a partial list. And we're going to look at that last one today, eating with misfits at the Last Supper. When you look at some of these things, Jesus' bucket list is just radically different than ours. He he like marches to a different script. He has a different set of priorities than we do. But to start out this sermon, I want to ask you a question. Whose bucket list do you think leads to a truly fulfilling, meaningful, joy-filled life? Yours or Jesus? Not a trick question. You're in a church. Second question, whose bucket list is harder to do? Same answer. And it's not that our bucket lists are desires. It's not that they're bad. Often they're very, very good. It's just that they can be incomplete. And so Jesus' bucket list kind of reorients our priorities, reorients how we define the good life to lead us into a life that is harder for sure, but that he promises is bigger, better, deeper, richer. It's what he calls the kingdom of God. 
But not only that, his bucket list, we're going to look at this for the next couple weeks, his bucket list shows just how amazingly, compellingly, radically different Jesus is than anything else. This is part of why I switched from being an atheist to following Jesus. He is so compellingly, radically, amazingly different. The writer Philip Yancey says that if Jesus had not existed, we never could have made him up because he's just so outside any box we have. And that's what's so compelling about him. So we're going to look at that for the next couple of weeks. And you see this radical difference in today's text that Colin just read, the Last Supper. Jesus, at this point, only has a few hours to live, and he spends that with eating a meal with his disciples. Now, at first, you kind of think, well, that makes sense, right? I mean, these are his best friends. One last meal with your best friends. But you dig a little deeper. Just who are these friends? Because it's an interesting group of folks. One of the disciples, named Simon, was a terrorist committed to the violent overthrow of the occupying Roman army. Basically, one of Jesus' disciples is a Palestinian terrorist. Another disciple, Matthew, was a white-collar criminal who collaborated with the Romans to get rich by impoverishing his fellow Israelites. So sort of think Bernie Madoff. That was another one of his disciples. James and John had such anger management issues that Jesus nicknamed them the Sons of Thunder. All right, like what kind of temper issues do you have if that's your nickname? Peter would deny him in just a few hours, and Judas was about to hand him over to be killed. One of the reasons we know the New Testament is not made up is because the disciples who wrote a bunch of it come off looking like total losers. I don't think they would have made that part up. And did you catch what this kind of ragtag group of disciples do at this Last Supper? What do they do? They fight. Like, serious? Jesus has just told them that he's going to die. He's trying to have one last meal with them. You know, come on, guys, let's pull together for a kumbaya moment here. Come on, man. And the text says a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatest. Are you freaking kidding me? Like Jesus has just instituted the, you know, the Last Supper communion, all of that. And they get in this argument. Basically, who gets the corner office with the window and who has to sit in the cubicle? You know, Thaddeus, you, cubicle, now, right? One of the, one of the items on Jesus' bucket list is to eat with a bunch of misfits who were throwing a hissy fit who he said really did fit and were fit to turn the world and their lives upside down. Eats with misfits. Not on my bucket list, but it's on Jesus. At the beginning, he says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Let me, kingdom of God always needs to be defined. Kingdom of God isn't just us going to heaven, it's heaven coming here. It's thriving families, people breaking out of poverty, great friendships, restoration and the making new of all things. It's us living with more courage, passion, purpose, and joy. That's the kingdom kind of life that Jesus invites us into. And he links it here with eating, eating and feasting in the kingdom. In fact, Jesus links those things over and over and over again. In fact, just a few chapters earlier in Luke 14, he tells a parable that describes the kingdom of God, the kingdom kind of life, as a feast to which a bunch of misfits are invited. That parable, just a few chapters before the Last Supper, basically kind of foreshadows the Last Supper. So what I want to do for the next few minutes is kind of look at both that parable and the Last Supper. Okay, Luke 14, Luke 22, both are kind of stories of eating with misfits, and both tell us something about this kingdom kind of life, this radically different priority kind of life that Jesus invites us into. So we're going to do both of those today. So first the parable. In the parable, Jesus says this, 
a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. So the first point about this different kind of life, this radically upside-down kind of life, kingdom kind of life that Jesus invites us into, first point is it's a feast. Jesus compares the kingdom kind of life to a feast 32 times in the book of Luke alone. And this is really important. Jesus does not say that the kingdom of God is like going to the DMV. Okay, he says it's a party. You see this in the Old Testament as well. For instance, when God tells the Israelites to give a portion of their money to their place of worship, and then he says this, spend the money on sheep, wine, strong drink. What's that, like whiskey, scotch, gin? I don't know. And then you shall eat it there in the presence of the Lord. Bring your food and your booze right into the sanctuary. You and your household rejoicing together. Okay, that's quite a quote, isn't it? Now, I've quoted this before, but, you know, it it bears repeating in a Presbyterian church. (laughs) In the early church, communion would have been a full-on meal, lots of different courses, and lots and lots of wine. That's how communion would have been celebrated. So, next week, when you all come here, we're going to tap a keg. Okay? Yeah, they applauded over there, too. Like, what's wrong with you guys? Like, I won't be here. I will be polishing up my resume because I'll need a different job. But y'all are going to love it. It's just going to be an awesome Sunday. Now, now, obviously, God is not saying abuse alcohol. Of course not. That leads to disaster. The point here is there are two motivations for following Jesus. One, and obeying his commands. One is guilt obligation. I should, I better, I ought, guilt and obligation. The other reason is knowing that God is a good, good father. And when he tells us to do certain things, it's because he's inviting us. And in the parable, it is an invitation. He's inviting us to the kingdom kind of life, and it leads to joy. For some of you, this may be what you need to hear today. Are you following Jesus out of guilt, or do you follow him? Do what he says to do, because he is a good father, and he is inviting us into a kingdom way of living that ultimately leads to joy, even if it's hard at first. Now notice how the people in the parable respond to this invitation. When the banquet is ready, it says, they all alike begin to make excuses. First said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Serious? Like, you'd rather look at dirt than go to a party. Like, get a life, really. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. Okay, so he has a good excuse. Okay, but the others are lame. This brings me to my second point. The kingdom kind of life, this radically different priority kind of life, is a daily feast. In Jesus' day, there were two invitations to a banquet. First was kind of a save the date, okay? First was kind of announcing it. The second was when everything was ready. This story is about people who said yes to the first invitation, but when the time comes, they bail out with excuses. People who say they want to live the kingdom kind of life, maybe they're churchgoers, But when it comes right down to the daily decisions they make hour by hour, they got better things to do. People who say yes to Jesus with our lips, but no to Jesus with our lives. Anyone here sometimes fit that category. I know I do. And as a result, we miss the feast. We don't get to go to the feast. You know, the reason following Jesus sometimes seems boring or dull is because we're not following Jesus. We're following our priorities, our bucket list. And notice the people turned down the party not to go pursue evil things, but to pursue good things. The field, the ox, the marriage, our jobs, our families, they're good things. But if we make them ultimate things, we become so busy making a living that we neglect to make a life. 
See, the kingdom kind of life is about the daily things. It's not necessarily about selling everything, going, being a missionary. Yes, 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 sometimes for sure. But more than that, it's hour by hour, day by day. Last week, Annie told a story about a home repair that her husband had done that had gone wrong. And she said, I had in that moment two options. Right? One was to say, you know, what were you thinking? This is going to cost us. I knew we should have called a plumber. The other was to respond with grace. <laughs> in that moment, Jesus extended an invitation to a feast, a kingdom way of life, a choice, joy or an argument, a feast or a funeral. You pick. And I know it may not seem like a feast to respond in grace instead of anger when you're really mad, right? But, but if you do that day by day by day by day by week by week by month by year, pretty soon you know what you've done? You've built a really strong marriage where there's trust and love, intimacy instead of anger, your friends who have fun together instead of resenting each other. Now it's a party, and it happens through a thousand daily choices. Plus, as Annie said, obedience is just its own reward. And our culture so doesn't get this. But when we do the right thing, even when it's the hard thing, it just feels good. It gives us more confidence. Plus, for those of us who are married, when we respond in grace to our spouse, our kids get blessed. And tons of studies confirm this. You know what your kids most need? It, you know, it's not the tutor to get them into Harvard. It's, it's not those extra Chilean folk dance lessons they're taking or whatever it is, right? What they most need is a mom and dad to have a great marriage. Because that gives them the stability they need to thrive. And when you got that, you got a family who loves hanging out together and has fun together. <clears throat> the other day, I had a, a bad dad moment. Somehow, the subject of dating came up with my oldest daughter, right? That's like a landmine, right? So, and, I, and I told her that should she want to date, though I strongly recommend against it because dating before you're 30 causes your teeth to fall out. <laughs> this is just a fact, right? But I said, should you want to do that very dangerous thing of dating, I told her that I thought a particular young man that she knew would be a very good person for her to date. <laughs> right, what was I thinking, right? Colin over here, family life, he's like, oh, God, right? I know, I know, right? right? So, so, so I got the obligatory eye roll, right? But I was undeterred from my mission. I began to list the various virtues of this young man on and on and on for a long time about all of his really good qualities until finally my daughter said, well, you date him then. <laughs> Classic teenage daughter response, right? Here's the thing. There was no venom in it. It was fun and it was funny. It was good natured. You know what? We are not a perfect family, and I have told you many stories to illustrate our various dysfunctions, but sometimes we get it right. And in that moment, I was glad that our relationships are such that that wasn't a tense moment, though it certainly could have been, right, but a fun moment with my daughter, kind of a mini party, the result of thousands of decisions over the years. The kingdom kind of life is about the daily invitations that we receive. That's why the metaphor of feasting is so apt, right? Because you can't say, oh, I had this great meal in 1995. I'm good, man. I don't need to eat again. No, you've got to do that every single day. And it's the same with the kingdom kind of life. <clears throat> what are the invitations you're getting from Jesus every day? Maybe to resist a temptation to gain something more valuable. Maybe it's at work. Every industry, there's a part that celebrates the fall, things like bullying or greed, but then there's something with a redemptive edge to make the world more like it should be. What are the daily invitations you receive to participate in the latter, not the former? 
We get daily invitations to the kingdom kind of life. But somehow those invitations don't seem cool, right? Somehow we just kind of, life and the job and everything just kind of deadens us to this wonderful invitation Jesus gives. And so we kind of go, ah, I don't know. I have a good friend who worked in the White House for one of our recent presidents. And I'm just going to let you think it was a president from the party that you like the best so that you don't get distracted by the story. Um, one time I was in D.C. and he invited me to have lunch with him in the, in the West Wing. And I, I've had a fascination with presidents since I was eight. So, like, this was an awesome dream come true. So I got thoroughly investigated by the Secret Service. And you'll be glad to know my record is clean. You know, I put on my best suit, drove to the White House, only to discover there is no parking there. And they did not give me a VIP pass. Right? And the only kind of parking you can find for miles around is very exceedingly expensive valet parking. And I'm cheap, and I did not want to pay that cost, right? But this is the White House, right? And, you know, he and I, we've been friends since college. We were in each other's weddings. So I did not want to miss out on this. I did not even want to be late. So I paid through the teeth for valet parking. It still hurts to this day. <laughs> I am not over it. Okay? But it was so worth it. The president wasn't there, so I got to go into the Oval Office, although my friend didn't let me spin around in the president's chair, so that was disappointing. But I ate lunch in the West Wing dining room, got all kinds of cool souvenirs, including presidential M&Ms. I kid you not, little M&Ms with the presidential steel, seal stamped on them. Your tax dollars at work. <laughs> it was such an amazing invitation. Jesus gives really cool invitations every day that sometimes don't seem cool because there's a price attached, like valet parking. It is hard to speak the word of grace. It is hard to respond to the nudge. It is hard to do the right thing sometimes, but it leads to a bigger life. You and I were made for so much more than the world's bucket list. We were made to shape a planet where hard work is balanced with rest, where justice is tempered with mercy, build families and communities and, 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 and businesses that show compassion and call it the best in each other because that's what our king does. But we settle for less. Put it this way, have you ever said yes to an invitation, but when the time came you didn't want to go? Ever happened to you? But then did it ever happen that you went anyway and had a really good time? The kingdom kind of life is a daily feast. Next point, third point, with a radically counterculture host. In the parable, when they give their excuses for not coming, the master says this, Well then, go into the streets and the alleys and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. See, there are the misfits. Compel them to come in so that my house may be full. Love that last line. God wants his house to be full. In Matthew's version, it says, The servants gathered all the people they couldn't find, the bad as well as the good. See, the kingdom kind of life is like an Irish pub where the doors are thrown open to anyone who will come in. And this is what I just love about Jesus and makes him so radically different than every other religious figure. All the others said, you got to get good to come to my party. But Jesus says, no, you come to my party and I'll help you become good. Nobody else does that. He's radically different. And what that means, guys, what that means is that you and I, you and I get to party with misfits. You and I get to party with flawed people. And you know why that's a yay, hallelujah, amen? Because if God's party was for a better cut of person, you wouldn't be invited. And neither would I. 
See, this parable almost predicts the Last Supper. It foreshadows the Last Supper where Jesus eats with a bunch of misfits who start to fight about who's the greatest. And then Jesus says this to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them and call themselves benefactors. Not so you, fighting disciples here at the Last Supper. Instead, the one who rules should be like the one who serves. See, this was a hierarchical society, and the way to get ahead in that society was you had to cozy up to someone rich or powerful or influential, you know, totally different than today. That was called a benefactor. Quid pro quo. You do something for me, vice versa. But Jesus forms a radically different counterculture community. He says, my party is different you love people indiscriminately because you have been indiscriminately loved. And then he extends that love even to Peter who denies him, even to Judas who betrays him. And when we get how indiscriminately loved we have been and invited in, we have less fear, we don't worry as much about what other people think. And then, last point, then we become agents who invite others in to this upside-down, radically inclusive kingdom way of living. A woman in our church told me recently that right after 9-11, she was at the zoo in Seattle. And at one of the exhibits, she exchanged glances with a Middle Eastern man. And right after 9-11, and she said, when I looked at him, his face just registered fear. And she said, I felt God nudge me. Another word would be invite to reach out to him. So I, I just made a comment about the monkeys that we were looking at. And he smiled and began telling me all about these monkeys. Like way more information about the monkeys than I ever wanted to know about the monkeys. Right? But she said, in that moment, I gave him freedom to share something really kind of important to him that he was enthusiastic about and to be seen as a human being, not as a terrorist. She said, I was so thankful for the nudge. She got invited to invite someone else who maybe didn't feel like he fit in that moment into this kingdom kind of life. Philip Yancey tells a story, some of you probably know it, of an engaged couple in Boston uh, and they planned this elaborate wedding reception in the Hyatt. But three months before the wedding, the groom got cold feet and dumped the bride. And the hotel said that she couldn't get her money back, even though she'd been dumped and the wedding was canceled. So she decided to throw a party the likes of which the Hyatt had never seen. So she sent invitations to all the shelters for homeless folks and drug addicts to come to this party. Right? And then, then she changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom. And for, uh, that's my favorite part of the story, and, and for one night, the down and outers of Boston ate and danced and celebrated like there was no tomorrow. That's Jesus. That's why he is so radically different. He welcomes anyone no matter what they've done or haven't done, even if we've been boneless chicken, the rich, the poor, the lost, the found, the up and in and the down and out. He's the God who leaves the 99 sheep to go find the one that is lost. He is the God who runs toward prodigal sons and prodigal daughters and says, welcome home. That's my Savior. That's my Lord. That's my King. There is no God like Jesus. There is no God like Jesus. And if he had not existed, we never could have made him up because this radically different, radically different priority life, this kingdom kind of life does not come from the human imagination. It comes straight from the heart of the Father. A friend of mine has a friend named Jen who has struggled with years with depression and anxiety. But one day after not seeing Jen for a while, my friend and his wife were having lunch with her and she had all this joy that was so different. So they asked her about it and she said, well, I've been spending a lot of time with my dad lately. For 30 years, she and her dad had a very distant relationship. They hardly talked. She, she didn't know if her dad loved her or not. 
And this broken relationship affected all the other relationships, especially with, with men. So she started to pray about it. And one day she kind of felt God invite her to seek reconciliation. So on Father's Day, she called her parents with the goal of having the longest conversation with her dad that she had ever had. She said it was the most awkward 54 seconds of her life. And, and so it sort of felt like a failure. A few weeks later, she went, to, she went to see her parents, which usually just meant she hung out with her mom. But on this trip, she snuck into her dad's office, and he's an engineer who works from home, and she wrote on a whiteboard behind his desk, I love you, Dad, Jen. She'd never done anything like that before, but just kind of felt God invite her into it. Turned out to be a very hurtful experience because her dad never made one single comment about that note. If he had only known how much courage it took for her to do that. Well, months and months went by, and one time she called to talk to her mom, but her dad answered. But this time, he was kind of chatty, and he, he asked her questions. He seemed interested in her life. A few weeks later, he was in town, so he invited her to have dinner with him. She had never gone on a father-daughter date in her entire life. And at first, it was a little bit awkward, but as the dinner went on, it got better. And at the end, they decided that since they both love technology, their next conversation would be a video chat over the computer. So a little while later, they connected, they connected over Skype. And as she was talking to her father on the video behind him, she could see the whiteboard filled with equations all over the board, except for right in the middle, the words he had not erased. I love you, Dad. Jen. And now God is putting that relationship back together. First thing Jen does when she gets to work every day, she calls her dad. And there's freedom and there's joy in her life. And her depression is diminishing. The anxiety is fading because of her newfound love for her father. She got invited to a feast. And it didn't seem like a feast at her first because it made her life harder. And the guest list included people she didn't want on that guest list, her dad. But Jesus wanted him there. And the result was joy and reconciliation. Kingdom kind of life. Radically different priorities. So what are the invitations you're getting from Jesus every single day that sound hard, that maybe aren't on your bucket list, but that lead to a deeper life? And if you're not sure what those invitations are, maybe your homework this week is simply to ask Jesus to show them to you, help you to see them, and then give you the courage to step into them. The kingdom kind of life is like a man who gave a great banquet to which you are invited. So this week, what's your RSVP going to say? So Jesus, thank you. Your priorities are different than ours. You zig when we zag. And Jesus, that's what's so great about you. You're just so different. And we want to be different too. So Lord, we got the field, we got the ox, we got the families, we've got the jobs, we got all this stuff. We pray that you, your voice kind of just cuts through all that stuff this week, starting now as we leave. Help us to hear your daily invitations to step into a bigger way of living, kingdom way of living, so that we can be more your people. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.